So I want to continue um, this morning as was requested at the end of last time and continue with the theme that I explored last time, which I called committed action, non-attachment to outcome. It's, for me, it's a somewhat uh, provocative way of talking about this very powerful balance that can, uh, as a principle, can guide us in our uh, individual meditation practice, can guide us in our everyday lives, I think can guide us in many ways in the totality of our lives. And it's expressed somewhat paradoxically. How do we have committed action and non-attachment to outcome? doesn't seem to make sense. You know, our usual way of understanding is that we have, we have uh, both committed action and then attachment to outcome. Or the opposite. We're not committed, therefore we're not attached. <laughs> you know? And so there's something that's uh, brought together that I find provocative and somewhat paradoxical and doesn't totally... Uh, fit well with the linear logical mind. So in that way, it's an invitation, as with, I think, much of spiritual practice, an invitation to work more intuitively, uh, to explore the edges of paradox. And so what I want to do today is to review fairly briefly some of what I explored last time, particularly by Uh, talking about the idea of commitment, committed action, non-attachment to outcome, and talking about how we might practice with that that principle. And then I'd like to, um, after that, after that review, to identify certain features, I think, of what this uh, principle looks like when we've practiced it for a while. And in doing so, I want to make some use of some interviews which I've done uh, a lot in the, in the last period of time for uh, the book which I'm completing now uh, on bringing our practice out into the world because I think this is a very, very important theme. So I want to actually uh, bring in both some of my own experiences but bring in some other voices that I, I hope you find um, compelling, I, I certainly do, from, from a number of different people. Now this, this principle or this theme of committed action, non-attachment to outcome, I think can be expressed in different ways. It's really a principle which explores a theme that, that um, I think is really important to us with what's the difference, we might say, between commitment and attachment. It partly looks at that question. You know, we know that commitment is very, very crucial to our practice, to our lives, to our work, to our relationships, and yet we're invited to not be attached. So how is commitment different from attachment? That's part of what we'll explore. It's also a way of talking about the balance, we might say, of compassion and wisdom. Compassion brings the energy of commitment, of caring, of constancy. And wisdom, in Buddhist tradition, points particularly to emptiness. How does compassion and emptiness go together? We're invited to bring them together. 
and yet it's somewhat paradoxical. How can I be compassionate and also have an understanding of emptiness? How can I really care and not be attached? Again, I think our conditioned ideas are that if we're committed, then we're attached. So how do we do that? How do we explore? Last time, I mentioned how, in my own experience, this was particularly this, this idea was particularly inspired by reading the uh, Bhagavad Gita. And I read this very uh, pivotal part of the Gita, and I wanted to just read that again. This is, we find this near, near in the, it's actually in the second chapter of the Gita, and it's, it's a text that will inspire thousands of people, including Gandhi, including many people very deeply committed to, to compassionate action. This is what it said. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work, victorious one, the same in success and misfortune, this evenness, that is discipline, that came to provide the basis for what's sometimes called karma yoga, sometimes also called the yoga of selfless service, or the the way that we use work, service, helping others as a spiritual discipline, a spiritual path in itself. And I wanted to read you what Gandhi himself said about this passage, because Gandhi took his, his own tireless work over many, many decades to be done on this basis. This is what Gandhi said. The unmistakable teaching of the Gita is that one who gives up action falls. In other words, you have to keep acting. We're always acting. And that it's the heart of our lives to to keep acting. But then he goes on to say, one who gives up only the reward rises. The reward meaning the um, results of the action. So you act, but you somehow give up the results of the action. You remember last time I quoted uh, T.S. Eliot who said, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. So so Gandhi says, the unmistakable teaching of the Gita is that one who gives up action falls. One who gives up only the reward rises. One who is ever brooding over results often loses nerve in the performance of one's duty. One who becomes impatient and then gives vent to anger and begins to do unworthy things. One jumps from action to action but never remaining faithful to any. When there is no desire for fruit... There is no temptation for untruth or violence. So the teaching in the Gita was action without attachment to the fruits of one's actions. Take any instance of untruth or violence and it will be found that at its back was the desire to attain the cherished end. So he's saying that problems of being untruthful and problems of violence come when one's too attached to the ends. Now interestingly, Gandhi also says that we have to be impeccable. In a way, some of you may know, Jack Jack Kornfield likes to talk about the teachings of Carlos Castaneda, this balance of being impeccable with what he calls controlled folly, (laughs) of acting in this impeccable way, but somehow being light once one's acted, 
somehow releasing one's action into the world. So Gandhi, let me see if I can find this, Gandhi also said, right after he was, he was uh, writing that earlier passage, Let me see if I can find this. Well, I can't find it, but I'll, I can paraphrase. He basically said that even though you give up attachment to the results, you still give great attention to doing the work well. You give great attention to how to do something, how to bring care to something, but then one does it and one somehow releases the action. And last time, to help make sense of this, uh, many people said, well, isn't that what you do with parenting? (laughs) Isn't that what you do with raising children, that you give tremendous care, but one can't be too attached to the outcome, in particular to controlling what the children become? You know, in some ways, so there's tremendous care, but there's a certain kind of letting go in the action as well. And that's, I think, what's being pointed to. And I gave the story last time of my own learning of this in teaching, uh, in teaching uh, football players. Do you remember that story? <laughs> uh, teaching football players at night after they had practiced all day and having necessarily to learn about non-attachment to the fruits of my actions. <laughs> so in the um, Buddhist tradition, this teaching is expressed especially by being very careful with what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds, and looking out for how in one's actions one gets attached to certain of these winds or these conditions and becomes aversive to others. So the eight worldly winds, which is this incredible strong teaching that really influenced me when I first heard it, is the teaching that there are these eight winds that blow us around. You might say that blow us so that we lose our center. And the winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, or you might say reputation, and praise and blame. And what's being pointed to is a way of practice so that we look very carefully when we are knocked around by pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. In, in our practice, I think that in addition to maybe attempting to strengthen our commitment and explore non-attachment, what, what our practice really looks like when we take this principle as a guide is that we particularly look for how we fall off in, one of, in, in two ways, I should say. On the one hand, we seem to get attached to particular outcomes, We get attached to results. We act, and something happens that we don't like, and we get very upset. We act, and someone praises us. We feel great. Someone criticizes us. We get deflated. The other way that we get knocked off balance by the winds is through the way that we don't really have committed action, the way that we somehow are lacking in caring or... Uh, clarity of intention, or fullness of effort. So you could say that we find ourselves off balance either 
by being attached to, in some ways, to the results of the actions, or by um, finding that our actions are somehow not very full. And I think we have to look at both aspects. And so that's where this balance uh, comes in, where we can see that this is really a balance of compassion and, uh, compassion and wisdom, that we can fall off in having a lack of compassion or a lack of caring, which is an occupational hazard for Buddhists who are preoccupied with being wise and equanimous. There can be this way that we uh, don't really uh, act so well. Uh, the way that we maybe, I, when, when we look to equanimity, we find that the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. You know, this, is what, um, this is what one of the persons I interviewed, uh, Christopher Titmus, said about this tendency. I mean, some, how many people know Christopher? So Christopher, as you can imagine, he says, the, the Achilles heel of Buddhism, the shadow, is the lack of engaging. You might say it's the lack of fullness of, of effort, fullness of action. But life is engagement. The danger is that sitting on the cushion, which potentially helps us to see things clearly and develop the energy and passion to respond, can become, can become a kind of zone of security. Meditation then becomes navel-gazing, trying to keep the self comfortable. But life ain't secure and comfortable. Dharma practice must move towards fearlessness. Sometimes we have to take certain risks, not for their own sake, like bungee jumping or driving a car fast. That's egotism. (laughs) We have to risk moving consciousness away from its safety zone again and again and again as part of practice. And so that's something that we look at. How is my effort not full? How am I taking, finding too much security in my sense of being spiritual or as a meditator. And, and that's something that I think for each of us will tend to fall on one side of this balance. Some of us will tend to be overly attached to the outcomes or the results, and some of us will be, have difficulties with really acting fully, with engaging fully, with having clarity of intention. And, and we can ask ourselves, on what side of this divide do I fall? You know, where do, I, where do I turn up? And so when we, look to the, when we look to the worldly winds, we can see the way we get attached. And so what we, what we do when we practice is, when we practice this principle, is we start studying, as many of you have in the last week, we start studying what, how does praise and blame have an effect on me once I've acted? You know, if I'm giving a Dharma talk, how much am I dependent on my sense of well-being on feedback? On the other hand, how can I listen to feedback and take it in, but how do I find whether I get knocked around emotionally, caught up by praise and blame? You know, one of my favorite stories is from a friend, Larry Rosenberg, who told me the story of this time that he taught a meditation retreat and he was, signed, he was lined up to teach the retreat, but no one signed up for it. And it was a Zen retreat, and his Zen teacher told him that he should teach the retreat anyway. No one had, <laughs> no one had signed up for the retreat. And, and Larry was invited to go um, to the meditation hall, and he was the only one there. And it was a four-day retreat. And he sat in the hall, he did the bowing, he did the... All, all the, um, 
meditation, the sitting, the walking. He also gave talks, and there was no one there. <laughs> and he said, he said, for the first day, I felt extremely foolish. But then, after that day, after the first day, for the last three days, I began to see the wisdom of my teacher's instruction for me to teach this retreat, even though no one was there. Because I began to see that I could act in this full way even though there wasn't anyone there, even though you might say the results weren't what we had intended, what we wanted, that there was some way that I could act with dignity and presence no matter what was happening. And he said, since then, I've been much less influenced by thoughts about uh, how many people were at the retreat. You know, 80 people. Oh, full retreat. How many people were at the retreat? Four. Not such a good retreat. And Larry says that that whole numbers game and that whole looking to external reference points to let him know that he's done a good job, it fell away. There was much more of a sense of, I'm just acting. I'm just doing my best. The conditions change. In some ways, I have no control over the conditions. They keep changing, but my fullness of effort is there and my commitment is there. And so when we, when we practice, we have to keep looking at all the ways that we get tripped up. And it, they keep, we keep getting tripped up, don't we? We keep noticing how things bother us, how, you know, how particularly, I think, in our culture, we're all incredibly sensitive towards uh, praise and criticism. You know, I know for myself, at times in the past, um, you know, if I had done something or written something or said something or taught in a certain way, I could get 10 positive feedbacks and I would get one or two critical feedbacks and I'd be a wreck for a while. <laughs> you know, that there's some way that, uh, and that was practice, that was learning. Oh my gosh, I got knocked around again. I'm really, that, that bothered me or some, in some way. You know, that, I, that there's some part of myself that just, wanted to hook into the criticism as if there was some underlying insecurity. And so what we do when we practice is we come, we just examine the field of insecurity, of where it's difficult. We do that with presence and mindfulness. And in the process, we start to purify something. We start to develop further in this ability to be present. What helps, to, what helps to develop that ability to watch the winds? Mindfulness is really a key factor, just to notice this power of mindfulness, like the teacher at Chansamedo, who was here a few months ago, he has this wonderful teaching where what, what's, the, what's the way we practice mindfulness? We notice what's happening and we just say, it's like this. Feeling frustrated. Oh, what's frustration like? Oh, it's like this. What's despair like? I'm despairing. Oh, just despair. You know, I'm just noticing this. It's like this. One of the people I interviewed uh, is a, a young practitioner named Justine Dawson. And she told about how she used mindfulness working in a sort of a home for women and children who were trying to find some refuge from domestic violence and abuse. And she 
lived in at this. Uh, it was connected with Catholic worker, and it was it was in it's in Berkeley, and she talked about her work um, in being present with the situation. A lot of violence in the past, a lot of abuse, and so people are often all over the place, off the wall. So how does she how does she work with this uh, teaching? of being really fully present and caring, and yet in some ways being really observant of how things aren't like she wants. And she said that in her first months there, she thought that you know, she would sometimes go crazy because things just were not at all like she wants. She'd want things to be quiet. Kids were yelling all night. So what did she do? This is what she said. Sometimes equanimity is a fruit of mindfulness. Just noticing something and saying, okay, this is what's happening now. I do this in situations when the kids are going crazy. I'll walk into a room and I'll find a total circus. I say to myself, here is the circus. (laughs) Then I might be aware of my own tendencies. I have this great need to change and control the situation. She goes, she says, she sometimes goes through an internal debate well, on the one hand, I'm legally responsible for, this kids, for these kids, and there is a standard in the house that we want to maintain. On the other hand, it's just a circus. And, and so she's, she has taken that practice. And you can imagine that, like, like my situation with the football players, if I didn't take some version of this principle of, of committed action, non-attachment to results, I would kind of go crazy. And she, in that situation, had to be very clear and notice where she's getting triggered, you know, where she's getting reactive, where she wants to control the situation, where it's uncontrollable, and where she can act. And so a lot of what we do when we do this practice is we just notice. And I think that, that uh, way of doing mindfulness practice by saying, it's like this, is an extremely helpful... Somehow that, that language helps many of us. It just helps us, you know, it takes the resistance out of it. Oh, what's happening? It's a total circus. It's like this. You know, things are things are hard. It's like this. And so we notice how the winds are present, how they knock us around, how they blow us around. So what does what does this ability to act fully and somehow not have the same quite that um, attachment to results, what does it look like when it gets more mature? I want to talk about a few qualities that I've, that I've found in my own experience and, that, and in others. Um, one is that when we are able to bring together both sides of that paradox, I think that there's much more of an enjoyment of the present moment. We're less pressed by, oh, I can only enjoy the situation if this happens. And there's much more of a standing back and sort of enjoying the situation as unfolding, enjoying almost the drama, you know. How, how would it be if we say, you know, when we're doing something, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but I'm going to do it fully, and I kind of, I'm kind of interested to see whether it works, you know. Kind of interested to see what? Whether this teaching works, whether this, uh, whether this counseling works, whether this... Um, whether this, whether my demonstration against the invasion of Iraq works, you know, to have a sense of more of a sense of the drama and the mystery of being part of the process, 
It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of an invitation to um, value the journey more than just this particular accomplishment or this particular result. How many people would rather just have the results you want and not appreciate the journey, if you were honest? <laughs> Who is really interested in appreciating the journey? <laughs> is anyone? Okay, very good. <laughs> but it's hard, isn't it? it? It's hard, you know. If we were really honest with ourselves, do we, do we really appreciate the journey, whatever happens? No. <laughs> Some, sometimes. Sometimes, but it's really a challenge. So, so this whole teaching is a challenging practice. This is not something that we, we hear and then we get it and we just align ourselves with the principle for the rest of our lives, right? This is a practice. This is where we're, we're invited to see where we fall away, where we, where we are lacking, either because of um, attachment or because of lack of fullness of effort. Another factor that really seems to manifest when this, when this um, principle is, is maturely developed is that we become more aware of the whole web of causes and conditions. We see the forces that are at play, and we don't somehow think that I should be able to control everything. You know, that we don't somehow think, oh, like for Justine in that situation, yeah, the kids have had really hard lives for the last 10 years. I'm here for three months, and I'm going to have total order here. Not in, the, not in the cards, as we would say. That there's some acknowledgement of causes and conditions. You know, or to think, for example, um, another friend was reflecting about what happened in New Orleans. You know, with the, the lack of, you know, basically the lack of care manifested by the federal government. You know, we look to what are the issues related, you know, in some ways we could say that issues related to racism and poverty are the result of thousands of years of forces. You know, they go back thousands of years. We can see the origins of that. And so we have, again, this is not a reason to just uh, not do anything, but it's very helpful to see that there are these there is this vast um, web of causes and conditions. You know, one of, um, one of the people I interviewed was um, a Vietnamese monk named uh, Minh Duc, who lives in, who I've talked about sometimes because he's a friend and wonderful teacher. He, lives, he teaches in, mostly in the San Jose area. And I did an interview with him about his perspective about uh, he was active in Vietnam as part of the Buddhist movement to stop the war and to bring about peace. And I asked him about the perspective that he had there, and he said that there was a, you know, at their best, they had a deep sense of the vast set of causes and conditions, and they developed a very long-term perspective. Here's what he said. During the Vietnam War, we knew we were going against two huge and powerful forces, the Vietnamese Catholics and the Americans. We did not think that by demonstrating we'd turn around things immediately. Rather, we had to look to the long-term process of what he called practice in Vietnamese, two. Two means to transform bad to good. Today, one inch. Tomorrow, another inch. We, not, we might not be successful right away, but perhaps in 10 years we would succeed. That's how we thought. That was the policy of the Buddhist church, communicated verbally by, by other young people, by local monks and nuns. 
For 100 years, we were controlled by the French and then the other religious religions took over. We knew it would take years to untie the knot. As Buddhists, we thought that we were planting seeds. The best and only thing that we could do was to create favorable conditions for the seeds to become fruitful. We didn't know how long it would take. Sometimes you plant a banana seed, it may take a certain number of months for the plant to produce bananas. But if you plant a coconut, it may take longer. (laughs) And so it's that sense of the causes and conditions have to be appropriate for things to succeed. In many ways, they're, in some things, ways they're out of our control. Another person I talked to talked about how he had this idea to start a um, house in San Francisco, which would bring together meditators and people who wanted to be active in the world. And so he had his first house, and people there were, some of them were activists, but no one wanted to meditate. And he spent about two years being extremely frustrated with them. They weren't, they weren't the way he wanted them to be. He wasn't getting the outcome that he wanted. You know, then he went off uh, for a year, came back, and then he found a group of people that really shared his interest. And this is, this is Temple Smith, some of you know, who leads teen retreats and is, uh, works for Buddhist Peace Fellowship. He said, I came back a year later, and the conditions were right, and I had success. And to some extent, they were out of my control. You know, the conditions were as they were. The conditions have to be appropriate for things to succeed. And somehow, we, we, in our impatience, we don't see clearly, right? We don't see the causes and conditions. We don't see how the conditions can help towards uh, success or a successful outcome. Keeping that long perspective is incredibly helpful. There's... Um, There's a Zen teacher who said, see things in the framework of 10,000 years, and then you will have right perspective. (laughs) You know, or I mentioned last time how the uh, Sri Lankan uh, engaged Buddhist, uh, A.T. Aryaratni, in ending the Civil War, had a 500-year peace plan. You know, or another person who, who I like a lot, Gary Snyder says, you have to keep a 4,000-year perspective about things. You know? So this, to me, is part of what this sense of committed action uh, with non-attachment to outcome looks like. There's also something about the mysterious way that things happen, the mysterious nature of change, particularly in something that involves a lot of strong forces. Do we really know how social change occurs? It's mysterious, isn't it? It doesn't just happen by one action. Do we know how change and evolution occur historically or socially? Well, we can know some things, but there's, there's inherently a mysterious quality to them, to, to change. And we can't really know sometimes what our actions are. We think we want to know. I did this, therefore I should have this result. And yet it's, it's important sometimes to really um, open up to the mystery you know, it's that quality that, um, that I mentioned last time by, uh, from uh, Vandana Shiva, who talked about how, how often it's very mysterious how things happen. All that she can bring is her totally passionate action and then some kind of letting go of the results once, once she's acted. 
some kind of balance of that. And there's a way that I think that the bringing this balance together, when we, when we emphasize that it's mysterious and paradoxical, I think it can actually bring forth humor. It can bring forth a sense of play and humor where we're not quite so tense and serious about this thing having to happen. Now, and then again, it's, it's tricky because we can fall away on either side. Gary Snyder once said, we have to act as if our heads are on fire and, if we, and, and as if we have all the time in the world. We have to act as if our heads are on fire and we have all the time in the world. Do you get that sense of paradox, that sense of how do we hold these two sides together that don't always fit together so logically? For me, there's something about this which even points towards the figure of the trickster, the figure, uh, the, the kind of the mysterious person who is acting but has a sense of the mystery of things, has a sense of the paradox, has a sense of the way that things are mysterious, ambiguous, and yet we still keep acting. We still, and we, we have a, sometimes have a little sly smile on our face because we know in some ways that we're not totally in control. This is what Castaneda talks about as controlled folly. Now, there's some opening up to the mystery, the folly, the humor of things at the same time that we have this caring and this compassionate action. And so it's, it's mysterious, tricky, powerful. It's a really, for me, it's a very wonderful invitation to, um, to come to fullness of action and to see the ways that it's hard to act fully or to see the way that we get attached to action. Yeah, yeah. There's some, there's something about um, liberating the fullness of effort while seeing how we get tripped up, and it's again very challenging, sometimes very confusing, and yet I think that we're invited to do this in our meditation practice and in our action in the world. So I'll stop there and open up to any further questions or what I'd love to hear are reports by people who uh, explored this in the last week. It's a very, it's, do you get the sense of this mysterious aspect of our action? I think it opens us up really somewhat to the mysterious aspect of life, you know, away from this, everything can be pinned down, planned out, cut and dry. So thank you. Please. I just wondered if the eight worldly winds that you mentioned, is that a teaching in the Majjhima uh, let's see, it's actually, I think, in the uh, Anguttara Nikaya. Yeah. But I, have, I, I can have the reference if, you, if you'd like. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, the Buddha was asked to, to, to teach about this. It, he, he, he observed that ordinary people seem to get knocked around by these winds. And he said that for practitioners, the winds are still occurring. You know, it's not, it's not that we don't have, when we're practicing, and when we're mature practitioners, it's not that we don't have these things. We, that we continue to have uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, but we have a different relationship to them. So that's really what the, the teaching is about. Yeah. Please. When I hear you talk, what comes up for me is the question of 
is it possible to have fullness of action to everything yeah. simultaneously? Yeah. <clears throat> that would be the part of me that, of course, strives for excellence, knowing that I'm not perfect. Yeah. Um, and seems that that, of course, is um, a superior or worthy goal. But, of course, as a human being, is not possible. Mm -hmm. So that's one thought that I had. The other thought that I had is when you talk about fullness of action, the other words that come into my mind is other words, keen intent. Mm -hmm. And would you say that those are the same? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the first point was really an observation about um, about f sort of fullness of, of all actions as a as a, as an intention, and and it, it was really to the question: Is is fullness of action similar to to keenness of intent? And I think they're closely related. You know, again, remember what we're trying to explore is this slippery area of how does how does commitment differ from attachment? You know, and I think probably if you if we each of us look to our own experience, you know, how am I in my relationships? How does commitment differ from attachment? In my work, how does commitment differ from attachment? In my uh, raising of children, how does commitment differ from attachment? I think a large part of committed action is having uh, clarity of intention. I, w I was generally thinking of three aspects of, of this fullness of action. One would be clarity of intention. The other would be fullness of effort. And the third would be the quality of caring. You know, maybe there are others that people could mention, but those were the three that came. And we can, we can ask, are those all present? And you know, we, we keep working on them. And we, we, we notice, how is my fullness of effort not there? How, how, is, how, is my, how am I not so clear in my intentions? And so forth. Yeah, please. I had an experience uh, of this uh, 25 years ago in, in Delphi, up above the Straits of Corinth in Greece. Yeah. And sitting like you are now, quiet, and asked the goddess Athena, who was in her temple, for wisdom dealing with a difficult situation with my brother. Yeah. And she said four words. She said, reach out, let go. Mm. Those four words, single-syllable words... I just said, that's not how I grew up. You didn't mm -hmm. reach out and grab, yeah. or you let go and reject. Mm -hmm. But it just it was a, such powerful, fresh wisdom. Well, and it's, it's, what, it's another way of saying the theme. Of it's beautiful, the yeah. And can, can you almost feel viscerally how this goes against our conditioning? Can you feel, I mean, can you feel how, oh my, is this, is this really what I wanted to hear? <laughs> you know, that there's something, there's something hard about this teaching. I mean, it's, it, it's a beautiful way of saying it, and it's paradoxical. Reach out and let go. It's not, it go you know, like you say, our conditioning would be reach out and grab. And the question is, what happens when you reach out and grab? And the other, the other way that we, would, we, that we would, as it were, fall short is that we, we don't reach out. You know, we stay, whatever, passive. You know, and thinking, oh, I can let go. I'll stay passive. I won't act, as if as if that would solve the problem. You see, so we're kind of so it's a beautiful way of expressing it. 
please, and then and then, yes, yeah. Um, another thought that I've had constantly during this teaching of yours is how liberating the concept is. I don't find it frightening or difficult to comprehend because I think a lot of us in our childhood were given this: if I can't win, I won't play. Mm -hmm. And this, hmm. and that's very, that's so inhibiting and so hmm. suffocating, you know, and, and to think about this concept brings that all into hmm. perspective. That what a waste of the life is such a philosophy. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful recognition. If I can't win, then I won't play. Mm. Mm. So the, the other side of that would be to say, I'm going to play, and I win, I lose, to some extent it's okay, it's okay right? Yeah. Please. No, no, I, th I think you have. Um, pointing to patience is really helpful. It links with what I was talking about, sort of a long-term perspective. Like you were saying, some awareness of all the causes and conditions involved. And, you know, patience, I, I believe, in, the, in some of the teachings of the qualities that are necessary for someone who's acting in the world, patience comes first. It's listed first. Um, that is very, very central to just be present, just to be present and to, um, again, this is a practice. It's to watch where impatience develops, right? That, we, that this, isn't, this isn't a teaching where we're asked to just get it perfect from the beginning, but rather it's a teaching that points towards the practice of noticing. I think the only way we learn is to notice the ways that we don't embody the teaching. And notice them over and over again, and it's it is it is painful because it's we, you know. But it's it's a marvelous way to actually look at some of the conditioning, and it's it's so applicable to not you know you don't have to be on the meditation cushion to work with this teaching, right? Yeah, please, Jen. I think I have to broaden my definition of what action is. Yeah. Um, be a little bit less black and white about it because when I think about committed action, I think of this driving constantly moving um, force mm -hmm. and from you know the, the t 
talk about patience, and I mean, sometimes the right action is, is not doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so it's, I think I have to redefine my action, what action means. Yeah, it's really, so it's really pointing to this broader sense of action, not as this, um, you know, it's, it's interesting in the, in, in the teachings of the Buddha when he teaches about effort. It, it may be that the word needs a different English word because we think of effort and we think of gung-ho, you know, incredible movements and gyrations and so forth. And, but the, the meaning of the word that's translated as effort really has to do with, um, with partly energy in the system, but also has to do with um, acting wisely. You know, with doing that which is wise in a given situation. And so, you know, so the effort is more the effort to be present and act wisely, which sometimes means to do nothing. You know, as, as, um, as the title of one of Sylvia's books, right? <laughs> don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> Please, Donna. Yeah. And um, we worked so hard to work with the children and the teachers to teach learning through play mm -hmm. before they went to school and then got torn down by mm. a lot of the ways the teachers offered education. And it took us so many years, and we didn't give up in working with kindergarten teachers to help keep that effort of letting children be free amongst learning mm -hmm. intellect intellectual mm -hmm. knowledge. And I was just so amazed at how these teachers, who were in the field much more than I was, um, able to not give up on that idea until mm -hmm. finally they were able to gather these teachers together and make slow steps in getting these teachers to not mm. stop the flow of, of a certain kind of education for these children. And yeah. it was coming about, and it just you kept seeing the patience that it took yeah. to not give up a certain desire, and at the same time not push. It was like push-pull, knowing mm -hmm. how much to push and how not to pull. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it, was, it was a beautiful, beautiful lesson. Yeah, and, I'm sorry. The other thing is that I worked in gardening also for many years, and I watched my perfection stop me from planting because I got to, had to have the right place for every single plant, and if I didn't do that, I wouldn't plant. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I lost so many seasons of not getting the fruits of the beautiful flowers and the vegetables mm. and had to slowly learn that that was quite a lesson to get over so that I could have something mm. rather than having... I could transplant at any time, mm -hmm. but forgot that, that that could be. And mm -hmm. I thought that was, that was a real lesson. Did everyone hear? Well, I, I, love, I love the examples or the areas because I, I think that I would love just to hear from people because I'm sure that people have themselves at times manifested this principle in beautiful ways, let's say in raising children, in gardening, in uh, educating people, educating children. You know, when you were talking about play and children, I was thinking of uh, the work that a friend of mine who sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock named Gwen Gordon. I don't, does anyone know Gwen? Who lives in Woodacre. And she's writing a big book on play. And she says that there are two kinds of play, and she's using the work of um, 
an author named James Carse here. She says there are two kinds of play. There's finite play and there's infinite play. Finite play is when there are games and there's winners and losers, you know, and there are rules and you, you know, it can, it can be interesting, you know, and there, there are rules and someone wins and someone loses. And, she, and for her, this is a somewhat valuable but still limited form of play. And I think what you were pointing towards what is what she calls infinite play, which is where it's really play for its own sake, tremendous creativity, not bound by the rules of winning and losing. But there's a different kind of play that I think we probably manifest maybe with each other, maybe in our best erotic moments, in our moments of being with people really fully. There's a quality of play which is fullness of effort and in some sense nothing needs to happen. And I would say that's the heart of education. It's the heart of learning. And so I would, uh, it would be amazing to see what would education look like, what would child rearing look like, what would gardening look like if we took this principle uh, more seriously, so to speak, more playfully. <laughs> you know, it's really, isn't it? Can you, so I'd love to hear from people, maybe people who've, who, who either have or are raising children, does this principle make sense in your own, in your own um, lives? Please. I'm not raising children, but I teach sixth graders. <laughs> you are raising children. <laughs> yes, 75 of them. And um, in, the, in, these, in this day and age with everything um, test motivated yeah. and um, standards, it's really hard. It's hard for me to, to, to know how to put this all into bed yeah, yeah. in the classroom, yeah. which is something that I strive for. Yeah. It's, it's a... Please, yeah. It's, did everyone hear that... Um, in some ways, the way the world's organized in terms of education and even child-rearing goes against this principle, right? And so if this makes sense to oneself, it really is, I think, somewhat, it's sometimes hard, and, it, and it's subversive in a very positive sense, that how do you bring about, a, as it were, a healthier way of um, education, of teaching? Please. I've retired from 32 years in the classroom, <laughs> and I know what... Deep certainty, the importance of play in in, yeah. in the in the classroom, and while learning is very actively taking yeah. place. Uh, Dade County Schools, Florida, so test driven that the elementary in the elementary classrooms and all of them they have outlawed recess. The Dade County students have no experience. They've outlawed recess, recess in Florida. No, just Dade just County. at Dade County. Which is huge. Third the biggest school district. And maybe please, maybe one or two more. Yeah. I, I think what we're talking about is what's at the core of the joy of grandparenting. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't that heavy stress need for results at least mm-hmm. enjoying the children yeah. as they are. Yeah, yeah. Please, maybe last two comments, and then we'll then we'll close. Yeah. 
I do um, ecological restoration work oh, yeah. in residential settings. Yeah. So it's just me for the minute. And, um, <laughs> you know, like the people for whom I work always want these formal planting plants, which I provide them with. And it's very, very important to put appropriate communities of plants and soils and things like that and bring what the wildlife is necessary mm -hmm. for the place. But always when I'm on the ground and doing it, it's like, well, <laughs> this is actually going to work better. So mm -hmm. it's that sort of, that sense mm -hmm. of letting go. Yeah. You know, I mean, doing the groundwork yeah. of having the correct things, but then just kind of playing with the spontaneity of, you know, how are these things going to really mingle? Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I, love, I love that balance because that's totally the spirit. Doing all the homework, all the groundwork, and then letting go uh -huh. into spontaneity, into creativity into not being so tight or so caught. You know, it's like, it's actually uh, one of my mentors in doing Dharma teaching, uh, John Travis, he gave, over the last years, he's given me instructions for giving talks, which is very much similar to this. The instructions were, prepare well, and then when you're ready to give a talk, Locate your consciousness and your heart and your belly and let your words self-organize. <laughs> and it's... Um, that hasn't always been easy to do, right? <laughs> can you imagine doing that in public presentations? It's like, it's, it's, there's, there, there are also qualities of trust that are here. You know? yeah. Trust, but, there, but I love that sense. Totally, you know, impe it's impeccable, grounded, do your homework, and then you sort of release your action to the world, you know. And, and it's, a it's a beautiful paradoxical balance that um, I find inspiring, but also, but also very challenging. So, last reflection, yeah. Well, just because we're talking about education and kids, I have a 14-year-old now, and last year I homeschooled her, I let her stay home, and we did. We got the curriculum, and she did a big part of it, but there was a big part of just letting her be and letting her yeah. spend time at a ranch and spend time babysitting and just not have to do all that educational thing at a time in her life where um, her father was dying and <coughs> she needed to be home with him. Well. And um, just trusting that that was going to be okay and that she could go back to high school this year and be prepared without having done the whole curriculum. Yeah. And she is, and she's doing well. Just taking those chances as a parent. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. Will be also for yeah. Yeah. So taking chances, trusting. So there's, a, there's an edge to this practice, isn't there? So let me read uh, one passage to close, and then we'll then we'll sit quietly for a minute or so. This is this is a, this is from Vandana Shiva. I read this last time. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potentials. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita to detach myself from the results of what I do, because those are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. 
You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. That combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think that getting that freedom is a social duty. I think we owe it to each other not to burden ourselves and each other with prescription and demands. What we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. Let's just sit quietly. And let be present what might have been helpful or insightful from the sitting, the talk, the discussion. And let also be present any intentions that might come out of this morning for bringing this practice more fully into your life or anything else that's come up this morning that seems helpful. What's my intention that comes from today? It might just be to notice more carefully praise and blame or gain and loss. And so may we offer what's been of value from the morning in this very traditional practice of the dedication of merit. May we offer what's been of value from our being together, from our community, out to the world. For the benefit of others, for their healing, for the mystery of their transformation, the mystery of our transformation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.